July 17th, 2020. This is episode 10 of the Soybean Pest Podcast. I'm Matt O'Neill, and on the other side of the Zoom is... Hi, everyone. I'm Erin Hodson. Erin, let's just be up front. You're working from home, and there's some connectivity issues every once in a while. I think my internet's kind of lame. Sorry, everybody, if I sound like a robot. It just confirms what some people were already thinking. What, that you got lame internet? Uh, No, that I was a robot. (laughs) Nobody thinks you're a robot. Come on. Hey, you're not a robot in my book. Computer keeps asking me, make sure to sign this and say that you're not a robot. Oh, well, that's because they're computers. They just think everybody's like them. A robot. Hey, what do we got to talk about today? Do we have a lot to talk about? Um, as far as pest updates, it's quite a bit of the same, except that over the weekend, we had some pretty extreme weather with some high wind and rain and some rain that fell really quickly in some areas. And so as a result, there's some down corn, um, which was made worse because we had a pretty heavy corn rootworm feeding on the, on the root system. So I've heard about some down corn um, that is gooseneck or lodged because of rootworms and then that storm that went over the top of it. So there's some some of that going on. All right. And then I got um, tales from the cannabis field that I could share and a a brief insect trivia. I don't know if it's fun. Okay. All right. So let's break it down. I got pest updates, weather, why is my corn down, cannabis, and fit. Okay. Let's, start with, let's start with the pest updates. Okay. Yeah, it's it, like I said, it's more of the same when it comes to soybean. We have a mix of defoliators going on. Right now, it's a couple different species of caterpillars, Japanese beetle, bean leaf beetle. We even have some grasshoppers starting to feed on field perimeters. So it's uh, looking kind of uh, tattered or holy in some fields because you just have a lot of different pieces starting to be removed. Um, I would say that in our small plots and then a few other people that keep tabs on soybean aphid, the numbers are slowly climbing up as far as number of plants infested and number of aphids per plant. Still well under a threshold, but the numbers continue to climb slowly, even despite the hot weather that we've been having. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the weather. Um, First of all, uh, this is July, what do we say, 17th, right? So the week that was, was marked by some remarkable weather. We had uh, some warm days. Is that fair to say? Warm, yes. Warm, hot. And what happens when it's hot? Corn and soybeans release a lot of water into the atmosphere through a process known as? Transpiration. Evapotranspiration. Okay. Right. So when you walk into a cornfield, um, you are experiencing, well, what James Brown would say. It's going to make you break out in a corn sweat. Get the corn sweats. <laughs> That's from my friend Brian Link. Corn sweats. Hi, Brian. Because you're literally experiencing the sweat uh, from the plants. And we were getting some pretty serious evapotranspiration earlier in the week. Uh, There's drought monitors uh, report for the week that was showed um, 
continued drought on the western, now western, pretty much western half of the state of Iowa. Yeah. Going into severe drought for kind of the west central part of the state. And that's rough when it's hot and there's evapotranspiration, corn sweat, and there's not a lot of water. You're going to have some problems growing that crop. Wouldn't you agree? It's def it definitely is a problem. Um, when the crop is stressed, it makes any type of additional stressors like pests, pathogens play an even bigger role on the happiness of that crop. So yeah. especially this time of year when you're, the corn is pollinating, um, we have pods that are starting to form on soybean too. So it's just a really important time. And the stress is no good for these things. And then those conditions, the dry, hot conditions are what spider mites like. And I think we talked about this last time that uh, yep. now is the time of year to start scouting for those. Those are really tricky to manage. Have you had any reports of spider mites? No, I've, I've asked a few of my um, dependable consultants that spend a lot of time walking fields and they said they haven't seen it yet other than just on the real perimeter, um, not into the field interior yet. So still at fairly low levels. So that was the week that was, except the week changed really quickly on Wednesday, at least in central Iowa. We had the fronts collide and some counter-cyclical, some rotationary winds. We were down in the basement for a bit in Ames. You were? Yeah, yeah, the alarms went off in town and at least in my part of town and we went down to the basement. Okay. Did you hear, did you hear that? Yeah. You didn't go to the basement. Well, we hang out in the basement, so we were already there, but yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, uh, recording the news reports and just personal experience, we had what they called on the news tropical amounts of rainfall to the rate of five inches per hour. Now, that's not to say that people got five inches, but it was coming down at that rate. And we had a little bit of flooding in our basement because... Yeah, it just pulled up in the backyard and went in over the window wells. And oh, no. um, I mean, it was minor. Look, I'm not I'm not trying to complain. I, there were people that had it worse. I'm just saying that we went from drought conditions to tropical amounts of rainfall. Unfortunately, it looks like a lot of that rain didn't reach the western side of the state. Kind of picked up in the central to eastern side. Um, so I, you know, looking at the fields that I went to on Thursday, things look pretty good but I don't think that's true for the entire state. What do you think? Yeah, and I'm wondering if you could answer this question. Do you know what the opposite of a drought is called? <laughs> I think our listener knows. <laughs> uh, that's a callback to season 10, episode two on May 24th. No. We spent kind of a lot of time, kind of a, a philosophical uh, conversation between Matt and myself, if you want to listen to that episode. No one wants to listen to that episode ever again. <laughs> but I think it's good to point out that there, there is the opposite of a drought. And these microbursts that produce, again, what uh, CBS local affiliate described as tropical amounts of rain. <laughs> That's the opposite of a drought. Okay. Yeah. So what does that have to do with pests? Well, it, it, it'll be interesting to see if we uh, continue to stay dry in that western part of the state. If we do, strongly recommend people go out and scout for spider mites and look deep into our 
website for management recommendations. Maybe you could send me a link on that because it's a little tricky, right? In terms of the product that you select and uh, where they might be in the field. Yeah, yeah, I could do that. Sweet. Any other updates? Um, You're talking about corn. Why is the corn on the ground? Well, because corn rootworms, the larvae like to feed on corn roots. Weird how that common name uh, is associated with the plant. But yeah. Um, yeah, there's just some situations, particularly continuous corn production that favors high numbers and you get severe injury, yield loss. And then when you have rainstorms or wind events, corn falls over. And so uh, Ashley and I, we had Ashley on a previous episode this year, but Ashley and I went to go visit some corn demos at Field, the little demo lab just west of Ames. And um, it's the absolutely best demonstration of corn rootworm I've ever seen. And of course, it's ironic that we're not having the public out there this summer, but it is, it's kind of laid down, classic goosenecking. It's intense. Sorry. It's wonderful if you're an entomologist. I mean, if for an extension entomologist, it'd be a great demo, but bad for farmers. Can people sneak in after hours and take a look at that rootworm damaged corn? Well, I took, some, I took some photos and I took some video today. So I'm hoping to kind of recap the highlights in our ICM website. Cool, 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 cool. All right. Um, anything else past update wise from your uh, end? That's really the highlights as I think about transitioning and soybean to reproductive stages. Um, it's important just to kind of continue to scout through seed set. So that's another couple of weeks. So don't forget about scouting. And once we're done with pollinating corn, you can still have some high pest activity with aphids and then maybe even like spider mites and grasshoppers this year as well. So continue to scout at least through August to make sure you're not kind of caught off guard. Yeah. Um I transitioned to some other crops. I was out at a field yesterday, today's Friday on Thursday. I saw a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Uh, I was at a place that had corn, alfalfa, and cannabis, hemp, right? And um, we swept the fields that we could. Can't really sweep, use a sweep net on uh, cannabis, but uh, you could, um, could take just direct, we took direct observations on the plants. And one of the first things I noticed uh, was that in soybeans, especially a little bit in alfalfa, there were Japanese beetles, you know, big clumps of them mating. There's some skeletonization of the That's soybean what they leaves. Do. Yeah. And in cannabis, no Japanese beetles. No. Are they feeding. a host? Um, apparently not. Mm -hmm. Apparently not. Um, Surprising because you can find them easily in hops. Oh, interesting. Really? Oh, I would that, say that's probably Iowa's number one hot pest is Japanese beetle. Get out. That is fantastic. We need to talk more about that. That's interesting because, um, you know, what they're related from the same family, right? Of plants, yeah. hops and, and cannabis. Uh, yeah. But there's some remarkable differences in the kind of chemicals those plants produce. And yeah, the grower was asking me what's going on with that. And I said, well, you know, it's a happy story, um, but you know, I don't think it has anything to do with what you did. I think it's just inherent in that plant that it produces enough secondary plant compounds that deter feeding by Japanese beetles. Or it may be that soybeans are just more attractive to them. But either way, uh, that's kind of a happy story. A little bit of a sad story was upon further inspection, even though those cannabis plants were clean, um, 
there was evidence and there of insect feeding and going on. We um, saw entry holes for a, a boring insect. And in splitting the stalks, we found at least one, well, at least two generations of Eurasian hemp borer. And that's, um, that's remarkable because I, I don't know if, I don't know much about it, um, but there are other boring insects that can attack cannabis and hemp. Um, common stock borer is one, European corn borer is another. We didn't see evidence of those two, although the farmer did note that they had found a common stock borer a couple of weeks ago. But Eurasian hemp borer, I think, is somewhat monophagous. It is a limited host range. And there isn't any other hemp in that area. And, and the farmer said they, they went around looking for ditchweed, the feral version that grows um, as a weed, because they didn't want that pollinating their crop. And um, they didn't find any in the area, but yet somehow those Eurasian hemp borer moss found their little plot and went to town. So, so you, you said it was an entrance hole or is it an exit hole? Um, Evidence of both. Evidence of both. Because would you think that the the moss are laying eggs on the plants? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I need to do a little bit of reading on this. But one thing that we found, even though the plants were mostly clean of other insects and not a lot of other damage, occasionally we would see little bits of feeding damage on the leaves, mm -hmm. and we were wondering if they lay the eggs on the leaf, feed a little bit in the first instar, the first generation as a caterpillar and then find their way to the stock and bore in yeah, there. That's so they, what I would imagine what would happen. Yeah, yeah. so um, we didn't see a lot of leaf feeding. Um, and, and what we did see was very, very small and kind of trivial. But boy, did we see a lot of stems that were bored in. One thing that was interesting about the stem boring is the plant, you know, from the outside looked pretty good. So um, it didn't yeah. have like dead, dead heart or dead top. Yeah, not yet, not yet. There were you know, a couple of leaves that were starting to curl up in some places, but there was a lot of new growth going on, even new stems at sites where they had bored in. So I think there's compensatory growth going on with that plant. And I'm, I'm kind of a hopeful guy anyway, but I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, that, that plant, even though it's fair to say it's infested, is still gonna produce some kind of yield when it comes to, you know, the goals of the farmer. Yeah, because that's what, if I was looking for, at a cornfield and suspected stock borer, the things that I'm looking at is discoloration of the developing whorl and like a dead heart. So almost immediately when the stock borer enters the plant, um, it kills that growing point and it's a very quick, rapid death uh, to small corn plants. So yeah. you're not seeing that. Yeah, I, I think there's um, what we would call in entomology tolerance. Right, so tolerance meaning that it's a form of resistance to the, the insect and that it continues to grow even though it's getting fed upon. Um, yeah, it, that was, that was kind of remarkable. Um, but if it were corn borer, say, and it was feeding on corn, not to reiterate what you just said, but my, my memory of corn borer damage was, you know, it would feed at a certain point and then everything above would kind of die off once you get to later in the season is that is that fair to say or is that mm. is my well, memory the first generation would be feeding on the developing whorl so okay. as the leaves as the leaves are still kind of wrapped up and so usually i would note it as like a shot hole where you have like that repeating pattern of 
basically bites as the leaf gets bigger, um, but it's not necessarily killing the leaf tips. It's kind of right mid leaf, but then the second generation, they're more interested in the ear itself. So they'll, they'll burrow into the ear. Um, females will lay eggs around that. And then- For, for European corn borer. Yeah, and the second okay. generation, um, then the caterpillars burrow into the ear um, eat the kernels, the, you know, the shank and, and mm -hmm. anything above ground really, but they focus on the ear and that connection point to the ear to the stalk becomes really brittle and then it can fall off, okay. but it doesn't necessarily, it wouldn't necessarily kill the tissue above the ear. I haven't seen that. Okay. I think that yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it wasn't corn borer, but I, I, I remember seeing there are other boring insects that attack corn, but splitting yeah. stalks and looking inside and seeing the, either the evidence of the corn borer or the borer, um, or evidence that it had been there, either it was there or it had been there. And then that the growth point above that that point of burrowing was dead. And mm -hmm. that's what I didn't see, at least yesterday when we visited the cannabis plants. It may still come to pass, but yeah, yeah we'll see. Interesting. It would have been corn borer, because now is a time that you would be seeing the second generation. Of, of European corn borer. Yeah. So, um, how tall are those plants? Uh, uh, about 13 inches. Oh. Yeah. No. Uh, well, it immediately it doesn't sound like corn borer then because females are attracted to the tallest plants in the landscape. Yeah. Definitely, this is not European corn borer. And we extracted some of the oh, larvae okay. and okay. They, they match the description of Eurasian hemp borer. I'll try to put a link um, for this um, in the text. Because it's a pretty distinctive caterpillar. Uh, they're kind of orangish yellow, um, not a lot of sclerotization. Um, anyway. Okay. Anything else? Oh, big dead pause right there. Fill it with some words, Aaron. You're talking, but I can't hear you now. Uh oh. Oh. Um, I had my regional webinar this week or yesterday oh, yeah. for soybean aphid and there was, I think, people from five different states attending. So there's some interest five, when it comes to soybean aphid, which I was honestly states, a little bit surprised. Five states on the yeah. webinar. <laughs> yeah. How, what kind of questions did you get? Um, do seed treatments work? Um, they wanted to know more about pyrethroid resistance. Hmm. And they wanted to know approximately, you know, how often are people doing like what I would consider like that hardcore uh, IPM approach where they're scouting and only treating when aphids exceed the threshold. Uh, I don't have that kind of data for Iowa, but Bob Cook was also on the webinar kind of troubleshooting any questions um, that I couldn't answer, which was pretty much all of them. And um, he said that in, in Minnesota, they do these surveys and it's anywhere from like 30 to 40 percent so the adoption of the scouting and threshold management strategy is is much higher in minnesota than it is for Iowa. 30 to 40 percent of the farmers grown beans in minnesota are using our recommendation scouting and spraying when they reach a threshold well it's it's a regional recommendation right yeah Sure. Oh, I shouldn't. I mean, ours being applied entomologist right. at yes. university. Yep. Yeah. yeah, there's a much higher. Uh, it seems like adoption to IPM approaches, and especially now that they've had problems, more problems with pyrethroid resistance than we've had, and so um, it was a good conversation. That's interesting. That's that's kind of hopeful, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I wish uh, it was more like that in Iowa. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to say. We don't do surveys of that kind of practice. So it is true. I yeah, maybe that maybe farmers are doing that. I, I did notice a few planes in the air this week when I was yep. driving around, and uh, I think some of our colleagues, our extension agronomists, have said that they're spraying fungicide with a mix of insecticide in there. So yeah, yeah. well, yeah, if they're spraying corn now, it's probably fungicides, and then why not just tank mix a cheap insecticide? Yeah, which is a pathway to resistance. Definitely. Oh. Hey, let's have some fun. Okay. Let's have a fit. Let's get fit. Sounds pretty nice. Um, all right, this is a different type of question. We've done this before. We're going to play over, under, or right on. I'm going to ask you a question that involves a number. Mm. You're going to give me your estimate. Okay. And then uh, we are going to give a moment for our listener to guess whether Aaron is over, under, or right on mm. with your answer. Okay. Are right, you ready? Yeah. All right. So uh, this question uh, comes to me from uh, kind of local experience. I've noticed that I'm getting some aphid rain on my cars that are parked under my uh, oak tree and some other trees in the neighborhood. Uh, there's evidence that there's buildup of aphids in those trees and the honeydew is starting to rain down on the car, make a nice little sticky, and then if mold grows on it, nasty surface. So it got me wondering, um, how, what percentage of the vascular plants in the planet are hosts for aphids? As a percentage, what, how many of the plants on the planet are are hosts for aphids. Because we've talked about soybean aphids and alfalfa aphids, corn aphids, but aphids don't just feed on annual plants, right? Like crop plants, they feed on other things. So what percentage of the plants that are out there have been, you know, there's, there's evidence that aphids feed on them? Oh man, that's hard. There's a lot of aphids in the world. Most of them are fairly host specific. Um, yeah. What percent, I'm gonna say, 43. 43. So just to add a little bit to your thinking, and let me just reiterate, the question was what percentage of vascular plants of the world are host for aphids? Aaron said 43%. So now you, our listener, write down whether she was over, under, or right on. So I was reading some papers in preparation for class uh, this fall, and I'm teaching insect ecology. And uh, I came across a paper called, Why Are There So Few Aphids, Especially in the Tropics? And what this author, uh, AFG Dixon and his co-authors were wondering about is, especially in the tropics, where there's a lot of biodiversity and a lot of diversity of insects, why don't they see that for aphids? Most aphid diversity in terms of species are found in temperate regions like Iowa. And they go on to uh, do some experiments and modeling to um, suggest that it's the abundance of the individual plants themselves, not the diversity of plants that is really a factor there. So in areas where plants of a certain type are very abundant, aphids can do really well because they're so small. Uh, they can't survive very long without feeding. They can't travel very far of their own power. So in areas like the tropics where diversity of plants is a lot, but abundance of any one plant is small, aphids don't do so well. Hmm. But they did note that 
97% of the vascular flora of the world are hosts for aphids. Oh, man. I way undercut it. Yeah. I was shocked by that. Don't I, Look, I, I, I post these questions and some of them are ridiculous, but uh, I mean, nobody should know this off the top of their head, but yeah, I was blown away by that. I was like, really? 97%? That My gut said something like 80 something percent. Uh, like, no, I'm going to cut that in half because I uh, always kind of go way overboard because I was like, I was thinking about just, you know, I'm not that familiar with plant right. diversity, but I was like, every plant here has an aphid. So it's like, gosh. Well, you always cut the value in half when somebody asks you something like, hey, how much do you think I paid for this? Or yeah, you know, exactly. how heavy do you think I am? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that's what I had for a fit today. That was pretty I mean, fun. And plus right. it's bonus. It was aphid related. So that made me happy. All right, making people happy. Okay, so uh, as we wrap up, just want to shout out to Brian Link for the the title for today's podcast, mm-hmm. Apple Transpiration. Okay. Gives you the corn sweats. And uh, this week, July 20, and this coming week, July 23rd, I have a webinar that people can sign up for if they want to learn about the prairie strip practice as a means to conserve beneficial insects, especially pollinators in crop fields and how to tap into the Conservation Reserve Program version of this, CP43. Check the link below for webinar instructions. Anyway, people can check in with you, Aaron. Um, Twitter, Aaron W. Hodson is a good way to get real-time updates, especially for Iowa folks. All right, and they can always email you, ewh at iastate.edu. Yep. They could email me, but why would they? They should email you, you know more than me. Uh, but if you need uh, to reach me, and who doesn't? O n e a l at isda.edu, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, our own po- our own website, soybean entomology research. Look us up. All right, I think we did it, Aaron. Okay, sounds good. Another good one. All right, thanks, Aaron. See you next yep. week. Bye. Yep. Bye.